this week. Garen, you ready back there? Yes, sir. Okay. This evening is Wednesday. It is February 3rd, 2010. I have an unusual message tonight, but that's not all that unusual for me. I have made it my ambition to not uh, pick on any of the churches in the area. I don't want them picking on me. I don't want to pick on them. There is more than enough enemy to go around. We don't need to start devouring each other. Having said that, if I knew how to share what I want to share with you tonight without you knowing any of the things that I was talking about, I would. But what would be the point? So I'm going to show you a couple audios. Uh, I guess you'll hear audios. You'll see a couple videos. Our message tonight is called Tale of Two Prayers. I want to illustrate something to you between two very popular figures in our culture. The message is not about them, not about their lives, has nothing to do with the quality of their ministries. It has to do with us, what's in our heart, and how we react to it. So these are just two examples. They could be interchanged. Uh, if one is in a negative light in your mind, uh, replace it with my name. Okay? But I want you to hear something in this tale of two prayers. The first thing that I'm going to do is play about a minute and 20 seconds of audio and video. Uh, we recently had what the Wall Street Journal called a historic election. In Houston, uh, if you never knew the mayor's name, what the whole world wants you to know is that for the very first time in a city with more than a million people, we have someone that is quote-unquote openly gay as a mayor. I am not against this mayor. I'm not against uh, gay people personally. I am against sin anywhere that it occurs, and I would rather be ruled by righteousness than sin. I feel exactly the same about a man that is in adultery. I feel exactly the same about a teenager that's in pornography. I want righteousness to reign in my life, in our city, everywhere around us. And our message tonight has to do with contrasting one prayer that you're going to hear with another prayer that you're going to hear. And then we'll ask you where your heart lies and what your lifestyle promotes. Okay, y'all ready to listen? Thank you. Why don't we pray together? Father, thank you for this time to come together with our friends and our family just to celebrate your goodness and the great city that we live in and the new leadership here in our city. Oh. Father, we are celebrating new leadership in our city. New leadership that is nationally renowned for being openly homosexual. We're celebrating new leadership that is sitting in front of this podium, the podium that you see in front of you on the screens, with her hand on a Bible and in the hand of another woman. We're celebrating that, Father. That stuck in my gut a little bit. It has nothing to do with the man that's speaking. It has everything to do with this being a heart's prayer. Anybody's. Yours, mine, anybody's. It seems sweet. But as we move forward, I want you to see what the Word says. And next time we say, God bless America, we need to examine whether or not we're living in a way that God can bless. We just ask for your wisdom on all of our elected officials. Lord, we pray that you will guide them, that you will direct them. Lord, that you'll help them to make the best decisions for our city. Lord, we just pray for your strength and your protection around them and their families. We ask that you keep them strong and healthy. And Lord, we just thank you that we have a great city, but we believe our city can even be brighter, that we can do greater things, that we can help people even all over the world. So, Lord, we commit this day into your hands. We ask that everything we do would bring honor to you. And we just lift up especially <coughs> Mayor Anise Parker, Lord. We thank you just for raising her up, raising we thank you, Lord, for raising up above us, raising up to govern us, a homosexual mayor. Uh, I want Denise Parker to be born again. I, I believe that her office is ordained of God and that it's not possible that she holds that office unless God allow it. I'm not against Denise Parker any more than I'm against the man that is speaking here. I'm saying, why does it not strike people as odd as if something is wrong when the pastor of the nation's single largest church has no problem praying like this, and there is not mass outcry. What is wrong with us when we have fallen so far that we don't even think it's unusual to thank God for blessing us with a homosexual mayor? To thank God for a historical first, his goodness
to our city that we are ruled by behavior that used to be called deviance. I looked up in Wikipedia. And just for your goodness, your mercy in her life, and just for... Yeah, forgive me. I looked up in Wikipedia the woman's name. I didn't do this because I wanted to slander the woman. I did this because I figured what Wikipedia said in the first few sentences was probably what she was most known for. First few sentences say her name is an American politician and the mayor of Houston as of January 2nd, 2010. She served as an at-large member of the Houston City Council from 97 to 2003 and city controller from 2004 to 2009. Parker is Houston's second female mayor and the first openly gay mayor. That is in the opening paragraph of the description. USA Today, last I checked, not a Christian publication, found it strange that when asked about homosexuality, a pastor simply responded, it's not God's best for you. Saying homosexuality is not God's best for someone is about like saying, well, I know he committed suicide. That's not best for his health. So, Eric, are you, uh, are you hating on homosexuals? Let me be very clear here. I do not blame the homosexual here. I do not blame homosexuals for their sin. I really don't. There will be a day when people will account for their sin. I blame the church for not making a distinction. I blame the leadership that has gone before us and what we have participated in for allowing it to get to this state. When I read that between 13 and 19 years old, the teenagers of America today abort 340,000 babies every single year. That's bigger than the city that I grew up in and it disappears every year in innocent children. Well, I blame the church for letting that happen on its watch. Why are we not in jail? Why are we not in a position where our outcry was so loud when Roe versus Wade happened that we would not tolerate it or they would not tolerate us, one or the other? The answer is because we didn't draw a distinction. When you begin to try to draw a distinction, people will mistake you for not liking this man who's speaking. I happen to love him. I loved his father. I studied the works that his father wrote. I admire the church story. It started in 1956 in a feed store as a flaming, powerhouse, charismatic, miracle machine. I find it interesting today that when you read their doctrinal statement, it doesn't even mention the baptism in the Holy Ghost. But I am not picking on that church. I want to ask you, what is wrong with this scenario? The picture that you see right here is of a woman and her lifetime lover with their hands on a Bible... In the nation's largest church, added validity to this by offering the opening prayer. And nobody seems to think that's strange. There are a couple in the homosexual community that are upset because they said it's too far to go. It's religious bigotry to say homosexuality is not God's best for you. They say that's bigotry. But if you Google this event... The first hundred or so responses are from people that are in biblically amoral lifestyles that are praising it for its tolerance. Something's wrong. Something's wrong when we tolerate this. Something's wrong when we buy these books. Something is wrong when you have to have traffic police direct traffic to get into a place where this is happening. Something's wrong. We have completely lost a moral compass. And I'm not preaching about this man. I happen to love him. His personality reminds me of two of my very best friends. I think highly of him. It's probably one small mistake in a grand, beautiful life. But where is our compass? What's happened? Why does this not bother us? I told you tonight it would be a tale of two prayers. I want you to hear instead a different prayer. This one is offered in Kansas. It is not before a mayor. It is before an entire government legislature. Whereas this first prayer that we've mentioned over the mayor was met loudly with applause. This second prayer is going to be met with complete and utter disdain. In fact, the pastor who offers it 
leaves the building not realizing that there's a problem, and before he gets back to his church, so many people have called, complained, demanding his resignation, that his secretary is alarmed and is calling him before he even gets back to the church. I want you to hear the difference in the content of the two prayers. I'm not endorsing this man. I know nothing about him other than his prayer is beautiful. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. Lord, we know your word says, Woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we've done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule, and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask it in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you find any difference between those two prayers? I do. Mandy, would you turn these off? They get to be a distraction. I want to begin to draw your attention to something. One man is met as tolerant. One man is met as Beautiful and eloquent and positive and uplifting. The other man is met with scorn, ridicule, demanding his job, writing to his denominational headquarters, looking for him to be fired. One man prays for repentance. The other completely ignores sin and prays for blessing. America, what do we want? Is what we want blessing in spite of ourselves? What happens when the very blessing that you've asked for becomes a noose around your neck? Because your wealth has carried you far from God. Your medical services have taught you not to depend upon Him for anything. Your open access to communication has meant that the devil can pour into your mind filth that you used to be ashamed to be associated with. What happens when that blessing puts you to death? Is this really what we want? It's amazing the message of the kingdom has always been repent. The first words that Jesus speaks after coming out of the desert are repent, the kingdom is at hand. The first words out of American Christians' mouths are bless me. And we do not tolerate anything else. Like the minor prophet says, we hate him who sits at the city gate and reproves us. Saints, we need to develop a desire, a, a heartfelt request for what Psalm 149 says is a kindness, that a righteous man would strike us. What we've not realized is that this has gone on around us so much that it has infected us. The stink of it has permeated even the skin of the church so that you can't just bathe it off. It has to come from the inside out. All we know is bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, and there is no repentance in it, so the church has no power. I read to you Sunday, out of the book of Revelation, the seven churches that were addressed, there was not one church that was addressed with a negative thing that could not squarely be placed upon the church. The church in America. The church in America this year. 
I want to remind you of a scripture. John wrote this around 95 A.D. During a time period he was seeing something very similar to what has happened in the American church. This is 1 John 3. It comes from verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. We bought into this lie that says, oh, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all just old sinners, don't even try. First John says, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, not pray for blessing upon it. The Son of God did not show up to bless just anything. He cleaned even the temple. He cleansed it. He took a whip in one hand and the word of God in another and he drove out men that would pass for absolute saints in any church today. But we stand in our arenas. We pray for God's blessings upon amoral lifestyles. We see nothing wrong with this. In fact, you will pay $350 a night just to hear the man speak in a foreign city. But why? If our message goes five minutes over, what's wrong? As if this was not clear enough, look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. There is an incorruptible seed that was placed in you. This incorruptible seed is growing. As much as Darnell might make bread, and she just puts a pinch of leaven in it, that leaven, as small as it starts, permeates the entire loaf, so that it does not leave not one part of that loaf unaffected. This is what being born of God is. Being born of God is not compartmentalizing your life. It's not saying, well, on Sunday I will be a good man. It's not saying on Wednesday I will go to church. You cannot live like hell all the way to heaven. It does not work. The word says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. And yet, when's the last time you heard that preached? What you hear is that you are a champion. What you hear is that you are wonderful. What we need to know is that what we are in our base nature is something that God cannot bless, but he will deposit unimaginable power inside of you that will change you from a sinner into a saint. Before the cop-out floats between your ears and says, but none of us are perfect, you understand that the Word of God says, be holy even as I am holy, and without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Say, but I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this. I'm not nearly as concerned with what you don't do as what you do. James 4.17 teaches us something. When a man knows the good that he ought to do and he does not do it, he sins. He sins. If you know that you should be doing something and you are not doing it, that is just as bad as any kind of sin you might otherwise have committed. The difference between the wicked and the righteous has to do with he who does God's will and he who does not. The verse that got me saved was Matthew 7, 21. It said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, because Eric could say all of the right things. Eric could quote the right verses. Eric had surrounded himself with people who felt exactly the same way, like a man would surround himself with a bulletproof vest. The thing Eric could not insulate himself from was the truth. And 1 John says, if you say you have fellowship with the Father and you walk in darkness, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And I found myself sitting in a church I'd been in years. I'd been confirmed. I'd been baptized. The pastor and I were friends. My father was the superintendent. And I found myself a liar sitting in the church. But praise God, he didn't leave me that way. He came for me. And I responded to it. And he has been thoroughly changing me every day since. Turn with me to the book of Malachi. If you cannot find it, go to the book of Matthew and yet go further left. The tale of two prayers. 
One is about repentance. The other says, bless me at all costs. Bless me in spite of myself. Bless me in my wickedness. I know, Lord, that I've not honored you in any area, but give me more area. Our best-selling books, The Prayer of This, That, and The Other, they are never prayers of repentance. They are prayers of expansion. They are prayers of conquest. They are prayers, prayers of unlimited blessing despite your lifestyle. Why don't we see miracles in America, Eric? Why is it always in a foreign country? Why is it? Maybe it is because they have not been tainted by our stink. The book of Malachi is written during an interesting time in history. It was near the close of the Jewish canon of Scripture. It was the 39th book to be assembled. It came just before a time period where God said, I'm not going to speak to you again for 400 years because you don't listen. A famine that Amos said would come upon the land, not of hunger, not of thirst, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Well, what had happened just before the time Malachi had come is not all that unlike what has happened in many of our lives. The people had sinned and God rescued them. They sinned with Assyria and so they ended up in captivity with Assyria. They sinned with Babylon, so they ended up in captivity with Babylon. But God never abandoned his people to their sin. He came to rescue them. So in 516 B.C., a man named Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Israel, was allowed by the king of Persia to begin and complete the temple of God. This is what is often known as Zerubbabel's temple. The people were concerned as Zerubbabel's temple was being built. Would it compare in stature with Solomon's? Would the glory of the temple be as such as was Solomon's? Would it be powerful like in the tabernacle of David? Would God answer with fire from heaven the way he had done so many times before? And after Zerubbabel had completed his work, God sent a man named Ezra. Ezra showed up in about 458 B.C. And Ezra was a, a man who stepped in as a priest. He began to teach the people what God required of them. He began to reinstitute temple worship for everyone to begin to benefit from. You might say that the nation had now found its church. The nation had now begun to learn what godly living was like. The nation now had a pastor, if you will. As yet more time went by, a governor replaced Zerubbabel. His name was Nehemiah. Nehemiah came on the scene in 444 B.C. He had been the cupbearer to a king. He was uniquely qualified for this task, called of God to do it. He began building the walls around Jerusalem so that the people of God would have a sanctuary they could worship in. They would have a law and instruction from God they could be taught by. They would be protected from enemies. This all sounds like blessing, does it not? But a people who had had a reckless abandonment of self, a people who had laid aside everything to leave one country and go back to a place God had called them. A people who were willing to risk it all some, suddenly had something to lose. Doesn't that sound a little bit like some people you know? Look to your left. Look to your right. You got born again. You had nothing to lose. You were dead men walking. You're on fire and found God's fire extinguisher. But along the way, we acquire the prestige that our friends give us. We acquire wealth for ourselves. We acquire things that we don't want to lose. And yet the word says that you must carry your cross daily. Paul claimed to have died daily for the Lord. Malachi came on the scene and his very name means God's messenger. One of the first questions that he had to address, and sometimes when you look at what a man has to preach... You can know what the people's problems were. You would not have a law that says don't speed unless the people were speeding, yes? You would not have to have a law that says don't murder if the people were not murdering, yes? You can look at the instruction given people and see where their insecurities, where their weaknesses, where their sin lies. And in the first chapter of Malachi, the first thing being addressed, the first questions asked, is God speaks in the second verse and he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how has he loved us? Despite God sending them into a new nation. Despite God sending them a leader who built a temple. Despite God raising up for them a priest.
priest who pastored them, despite God sending another governor who built a wall to make them safe. How have you loved us? I've noticed this about Americans. I do a lot of counseling. And Americans are different than the counseling that we do in other countries. In other countries, if you have a line of 100 people and you pray and you don't see an immediate healing, the other 99 don't run off. They stay there. They still want to be prayed for. In our country, if people do not see immediate success, they get on a plane and go to the next revival. They go to the next church. They're hunting and shopping for immediate satisfaction. They want to order at this window with God and pick up at this window with God, and they will accept nothing less, despite the fact that their lives do not show any trust in God. And then if it does not go their way, we blame God. We often don't say, God, I blame you. Instead, we blame everyone but ourselves. We are full of excuses when the answer is blatantly before us. God cannot bless a life that is not walking in union with Him. I say, how have I not walked in union with you? Really? Do we really have to ask that question? If you open the Word of God and read the Word of God, it will act as a mirror for you. It will show you every area of your life that yet needs to be conformed to Him. And it will encourage you in those areas of your life that has been conformed to Him. But if you refuse to open this Word and raise up men that will bless homosexual mayors, well then you'll get what your itching ears desire. You will sit in church and feel like a champion and go home and live like a hellion. And one day will be very shocked. So Malachi addresses the heart of the issue with the people. He says, you act like God doesn't love you, and yet his very actions have shown that he loves you. The people began to be insecure about a great many things. Rather than read the entire book to you, I thought I would give you a few of them. The prophets had painted a glorious picture of Israel's future. They had anticipated Israel becoming chief among the nations. Well, now we've gone from the year 516 right into the 400s, and it hasn't happened. Are not all the biblical stories about men who were promised nations would issue from them, and for 20 years they walked around without even having a child? And yet we expect God to come through for us like a genie. Because after all, we're going to use the word like leverage. He must do what we say because his word says it. Haven't you heard that taught? Yes. The word is described as a sword, and the one thing the sword is not for is for your father. It's for doing battle with the enemy. God does not need to be reminded of his word. And if you would like to quote Isaiah to me, then we'll have a longer discussion about it. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't burden yourself with it. God does not forget. He does not need to be reminded. You who remember his word, pray, is what Isaiah is teaching. You are the ones that need to be reminded, not him. Do you realize how supremely arrogant it is to look at the Lord and say, Your word says! Like you have to do it because your word says. Friends, why are we always trying to put God in a box that blesses us, charges Him with fault, while excusing us of sin? Could it say something about our hearts? One of the next things that Israel was very concerned about at this time is that they were a small, backwoods portion of Persia. They were insignificant. On the world scene. I'm always amazed the number of people that fall to their knees while in American Idol auditions and say, thank you, Jesus. Why thank you, Jesus? Or at a UFC fight. I've just beat this man out of his mind, but thank you, Jesus. Yeah, because this is what Jesus wants. He wants another American that is an idol. He wants another UFC star that has beat somebody into a bloody pulp. This is what he wants. And in our football games, we kneel in the end zones and we say, Thank you, Jesus. I did it all for the glory of God. Really, if they didn't know your name, would you still be playing? Why do you wear a name on your jersey? Why do you demand a multi-million dollar contract? We are so permeated with this stink of materialism, with the influence of the flesh, that we don't even know the difference anymore. I told you Sunday about secondhand sex, like secondhand smoke. You can be so permeated by this imagery all around that it doesn't even prick your heart anymore. Did you think that it was strange when you heard about European beaches where people went topless and nobody thought it was strange? Well, go watch an episode of Andy Griffith and then compare it to Melrose Place 
and tell me how shocked we should be. How about Psycho? The movie Psycho came out in the 50s. They did not show a knife. They did not show the knife entering into a person being stabbed. They simply showed a shadow, and people were horrified at this. How many Saul movies have there been? How many did you go see? What's wrong with us? What is wrong with us? It's as if we've been sitting in a Roman Colosseum, and we started to watch people being eaten by lions, and we didn't care because it wasn't us. And then we watched more being eaten, and we didn't care because it wasn't anyone we knew. And by the time they got to us, nobody cared because nobody was left. We better wake up. We better wake up. And we don't tolerate preachers who speak like this. We don't want it. We don't want it. In fact, Eric, if you don't tell me in five minutes how to fix my marriage, if you don't tell me in three and a half minutes while standing on one leg hopping like a dog, I'm leaving. And, by the way, I want a position of authority in your church. And if I call you, I want to hear from you in three minutes. And if my kids aren't entertained, I am so glad I don't work for you or anybody but Jesus. When people are hungry for God, if you cut their arms and legs off, they would roll the remainder of their body into the service because they want to be touched by Him. It's been so long since America was hungry for God. That's why we see no revivals here. It's why we see no serious... We settle for parlor tricks. A man has excitement, zeal. Some idiot wearing motorcycle boots talks to angels and kicks people in the face, and we call that a revival. kidding me? Why have we accepted something that is not authentic? Well, because the genuine thing requires us to change, and we don't want to. As he moves on, the next topic that he covers with them, you can see in verse 6. He says, as a son honors his father and a servant his master, if I am a father, where is the honor due me? The people were doing something. They were bringing offerings to God because they didn't want the social stigma of not doing what was right. But they didn't bring their best. In fact, if they had a blind animal, they brought that one. If they had one with a disease, they brought that one to God. I saw a sign that said, Tipping is not a city in China. These people were tipping God. They weren't giving him their best. They weren't thanking him. They weren't falling down in graciousness, saying, Lord, you've blessed me, and of the first fruits of everything I have, I want to give to you to show you my trust. They were fulfilling a religious requirement. God said something that I thought was interesting. It's in the middle of the eighth verse. He says, try offering them to your governor. I don't know if the governor would take it, but I found out a mayor will. The honor that is supposed to be due our God, what we're giving Him, even our public officials would not accept it so poor. Some of you like President Obama. Some of you do not like President Obama. His office is ordained. We pray for him daily. I am thankful to live in a country where we have a president and not a dictator. If President Obama walked in this room, diplomacy would dictate that you stood. And yet, we have no problem having the presence of the king of the universe in the room, and we can cross our arms, file our nails, yawn, and stare at the clock and wait to leave. We do not even give God the honor that is demanded by public officials. But hey, our money says, in God we trust, so it must be true, right? God says that the fires on their altars were useless. If you are not bringing God your very best, not just financially, but in every area of your life, you need to understand His Word says it is useless. I want to remind you that both Cain and Abel brought something to the Lord. Both of them brought something, but one brought the best he had, the other just brought something that he had. What way do you think you can serve Jesus? Do you think that you can bring Him... The spotted parts of your life? The diseased parts of your life? Well, I don't have anything else to do on Wednesday night, so I'll show up. If you're not bringing him the very best that you have, he says in verse 10, 
Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you. The last man that I heard speak like this name was Keith Green. And Keith Green said, if you will only come to me on Wednesday nights and Sundays, don't bother coming at all. His own wife begged him to change that lyric because she knew that the church world could not abide by it. No, no, no. Jesus loves everybody. Yes, he loves you enough to get in your face and demand that you change. He's already got churches full of the sexually immoral. He's already got churches full of the half-committed. He has already got churches full of the completely corrupt. His eyes range the earth looking for someone whose heart is fully committed to him. My Father seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth, he said. We're looking for someone who will stand up and be real. I don't stand before you free from all weakness. I don't stand before you having everything obtained in perfection. But what I can say is I stand before you living out every area I know how and I am striving to be taught. Can you say the same? Don't compare yourselves with me. Compare yourselves with Jesus himself. But I do want to remind you, our pastors have lost the ability to say, follow me as I follow Christ, because they're ashamed of the way they follow Christ. I met one just the other night. He lied to me three times in the first 60 seconds I talked to him. Three times. And when I looked in his eyes, I saw somebody who would be a good politician. But he has a big church. Must be great, huh? Matthew and I moved here. We met another pastor of a great church. We're just little guys. We're nobody. He had pictures with him with presidents. But the love of God wasn't in him. How can you say that? You don't know a man's heart. I don't have any problem seeing an apple tree. I don't have any problem picking out oranges when I see them. Why is it that you have bought the lie you can't know your brothers and sisters? Well, we don't want to be judgmental. Relax, you're not the judge, but you're a fruit inspector. And if you're so stupid that you cannot tell the work of God from the work of the devil, then we got bigger problems. And yet that is the problem. There's no discernment left. We think if there's excitement in numbers, it doesn't matter if the altar came from a foreign country and was dedicated to a foreign god. It's new and big. Must be good. Saints, it's time to wake up. There's a challenge that's going out. There's a challenge that is going out that says, who is going to take this for real? Are you just waiting to get home to see what program she had DVR'd? I can tell you. I was doing my very best to explain to a woman at work the other day what we preach. She just could not get over the concept that we intentionally make it uncomfortable to sit in sin in our churches. She says, but you're supposed to come no matter what. I said, Absolutely. I'm never telling somebody not to come. I wish that the mayor was sitting right here right now. But it would not change my message one bit. And if it did, you deserve a new pastor. Or you should just go find another god. Buddha's right over there. i got a statue of him in this, this place right out there. Why not go serve him if this is just a self-help gospel? Or Confucianism? Or why not just go old school bail? But whatever we do, let's pick a side. Let's pick a side and let's be real with it. What I'm saying is get off of the fence. That's what I'm saying. My pastor was in a Riverbend nuclear power plant, and he said, all oh, those Christians are hypocrites. I hate those girly little blah, 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 blah. The Lord spoke to him and said, why don't you be a real one? Why don't you be a real one? And I'm telling you, why don't you be a real one? You stand up. Look, dear, here's a political slogan. Be the change in the world you hope to see. Did they ever mean that? They mean that about as much as they mean when they say we're going to give more money to education, we're going to cut the federal budget, and blah, 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 blah. They will tell you whatever you want to hear, and we're stupid enough to sit and listen. And keep doing the same thing over and over and over. We expect it out of our politicians, and we expect it out of our political pastors. And if somebody's different, if somebody's rocking the... Let me ask you something. The book of Malachi promises a man would come. His name would be... Elijah. You remember who came in the spirit of Elijah in the first century? Come on now, y'all better know. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he came. And uh, how did John the Baptist's ministry work? Did he, did, I tell you what, did John the Baptist say, come on Israel, God 
God has sent me because you are champions. Buy my book, would you? Would you buy my book? God has sent me because your best life now. Is that what John the Baptist preached? No. It's not. John the Baptist did have interaction with political leaders, though. Herod Antipas. Some people call him Herod the Tetriarch. John said, you know, Herod, I've been thinking, and I've got a message from God for you. And brother, that strange sexual relationship you have with your brother's wife, and the incestuous relationship you're fantasizing about with her daughter, it's not God's best for you. (laughs) That's not what he said? That's not what he said? Was he greeted with thunderous applause? Oh, well, that was just John the Baptist. He's a special case. But let me ask you. The book of Malachi addressed to people just like us. A people that were waiting for the return of the Lord. And it had delayed. And it had delayed. And the further it delayed, the further corrupted they got. And so God sent them someone who said, You prepare the way. Prepare the way. His message was repent. Turn around. And they cut his head off. What does that mean if we're waiting for the second return of our Lord? And he said in Matthew 17:11, Elijah still to come. What does that tell you if they are not trying to cut off your head? Maybe you haven't drawn a distinction between you and them. Is it only Islam that can be radical? Some weird-looking Mocha Santa Claus is out there, and he put some people on a plane, and he changed the course of our nation's history. Imagine what some people equally committed to the presence of God in a loving, powerful way could do. We're worried about radical Islam. If the church of God would be what it was called to be, they would be horrified of us. So why? We're not violent? <laughs> no, no, I'm not at all. But when you remember Apostle Paul was with you? If you were walking in the same power as him, you wicked son of everything that is perverse, you're not even going to see the light of the sun for a while. Darkness is coming upon you. And it did. How about Ananias and Sapphira's conversation with Peter? Oh, sweetheart, you lied again. I'm so sorry. Because the feet of the men you hear, they just got through burying your husband and they're about to bury you. She drops dead. So, well, Eric, why do you want to kill everybody? Not at all. Not at all. I desire that they all be saved. But if you don't walk in holiness, you will never learn to hear God's voice. You will never know what it is, and they will never take you seriously. Lord, we don't even take ourselves seriously. I believe the Lord will provide. (laughs) I love you, Jesus. I just also love all of these other things. Can I have both? I know that you said friendship with the world is warfare. To you? But, I mean, come on. Surely you love me so much you don't mind a little pornography, right? Surely, Jesus, you'll make an exception in your righteous standards for me because I'm American. (laughs) Me and Earl Pitts, American. Hmm. The admonition that was given to the priest in Malachi's day is in the second chapter. It occurs down by the second verse. If you do not listen, and you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. All of our books that are written, all of the bestsellers are how you can be more blessed, and God promises if you are not bringing Him all of you, He will turn those blessings into a curse. The heart of David was, give me neither poverty nor riches. And he explained why. When's the last time you heard somebody pray like that and mean it? Mm-hmm. man confidently told me the other night, see, the thing is with money, you got to know, does it hold you or do you hold it? I thought, man, that's well said. That's really well said. What are you preaching on tonight? Think like a billionaire, be a billionaire? Really? So you got a good grasp on the money, huh? The most pervasive problem of our time. The thing that God has sent his prophets to address. The thing that God caused you to be born of an incorruptible substance for was to tell fat, rich Americans how to get fatter, richer, and happier. Are you kidding me? But we tolerate it. 
We tolerate it and we applaud them. And we celebrate their sin. And we swim in it ourselves and we call it blessings. God says He will turn those blessings into a curse. Look at this. He moves on later in the second chapter. He accuses them of having married foreign brides. He is speaking both about literal immorality and having married women they were not supposed to marry. And he's also speaking of them accepting foreign gods into their lives. The very fact that we can have a program that is called Idol is humorous. It's humorous. Do you really think that that program would have went over, say, in the 40s? But there's nothing wrong with it. I get it. I just think it's funny how they market it. I just think it's funny how they market it. I think it says more about us than them. I'm not blaming them. See, maybe the difference between me and some that you'll hear is I'm not railing against homosexuals. They're blind. They're deceived. I expect sinners to sin. I'm not railing against Hollywood producers. They do what they do. They're foul. Foul things are going to come from them. I'm railing against those who are supposed to be born of an incorruptible substance that don't see anything wrong with this. And you know who is included in those? Me and you. you got to decide when are we going to do something about it. Is it only when your wife's got some kind of gallbladder problem that you get on your face and pray? Has blessing become such a blessing that it's a curse in your life? I can tell you, when you're in a jail cell, you'll pray. You'll pray because you want out. But while you have all the freedoms in the world, you can't seem to find time to pray. you got no health insurance and your wife might need a surgery. Your prayer life gets sweet. But why should you have to come to that? Are you a slave? Are you a son? Slaves have to be driven with a whip. The whip of circumstance. So that they will want to come out of slavery. But free men and women... We serve God because it's our heart's desire. Maybe we could spend some time honestly examining what it is our heart truthfully desires and we could change it. He goes on in the 13th verse. Another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. Well, that's good, right? You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Isn't it funny the audacity that we have? We will swim in all of this flood of dissipation and then want to know why God has not come through for us. We will say, God, your word doesn't work. We will say, I went to that church and I did everything they told me to do and it didn't work. How long was that whole time period? It was three months. And how many years did it take to get you in the problem you were in? Thirty-five. Good job, buddy. You're a real hero. Isaiah, the fifth chapter, right around the 20th verse, he says, Woe unto you, you call what is good evil, and you call what is evil good, and your people are heroes at drinking wine and beer. (laughs) What are you a hero at? And I don't even preach against wine and beer. I happen to like them both. But drunkenness is a sin, and there aren't enough preachers that will say it. Not enough that will say it. My Catholic friends told me when I was in the Baptist church that the reason the back door was on bars were for us. How funny when the church doctrine says no alcohol. When are we going to embrace the word? Let it change us. Not add to it. Not take away from it. When are we going to do that? We'd rather rework it into an image that looks like God has no power and hope nobody notices. It'd be like having a great big beautiful three-quarter ton Dodge. And it's got no engine in it. But you sit in it. You put your hand on the steering wheel. You're showing everybody, yeah man, I can tear it up. And you just hope nobody notices that it's the radio that's playing and not the engine that's running. That's what the church is doing. It's what the church is doing. That's why we don't even have altar calls for healing anymore. And if we have an altar call for healing, 
Praise God, sister. What you got? You got a, you got a headache? Good. Let's pray for you for about an hour. This one's got a horn growing out of his head over here. We're not going to touch him because people can see that. And what's the most miraculous thing God does in our services? He lets pastors push people over. Are you kidding me? Parlor tricks. Charlatans. Parlor tricks. So much so, it's infected us so much that even genuine men of God have fallen into it because the people expect it. Because we could never live with the fact that God wants to touch Cody and is not interested in touching Matthew right now. We could never live with that. So if Cody falls down, when we get to Matthew, we're just going to push as hard as we can until he falls. And if he pushes back, we're going to call it, he has no faith. It is ridiculous. He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith. You have broken faith. Say, Eric, that is talking about marriage. Yes, and we are supposed to be married to the Lord. How faithful have we been? How many of you want a spouse that visits you on Wednesday and Sunday and then doesn't bring you your best? Hadn't showered when he shows up? Got some diseased lips. How many of you want that? No. Probably don't want that. But we think God wants that. And what do we say? But I showed up. I even threw some change in the plate. Well, good for you. Maybe your hell will be a little less hot. It's fun. I mean, it is fun. We actually, in this spirit-filled church, where we teach the word from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, had to separate our offering boxes, and I'm about to put a sign on that one that says offering, and that one that says tithe. Because in America, you never hear the word tithe without and offering. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. A tithe was God's before it ever hit your hands. A tenth of everything you have in the fields, in the fields, belongs to God. We get it. We pay everybody else. We look at what's left over. We debate that for a while. We bring some of it. We call it a tithe and offering. How ludicrous. A tenth of everything that was in the field was God's or you were a thief. And this chapter says it. Stealer. Stealing. No different than crawling out God's back window with his TV set. <laughs> God would watch TV. No, of course he would. He's watching Oral Roberts Crusades or something. An offering was what you brought to show God how much further you wanted to go. We paid all of our bills this time. It was the first we were so excited. You know why we paid all of our bills? Because everybody tithed. Amen. <laughs> Amen. What's that say about the previous seven months? There's fewer people in here today than there was seven months ago. But when the few people that are here all were obedient, we had no problems. None. We had a whole bunch of people. When not everybody was obedient, oh, it looked good. Felt nice. Have all 76 chairs or whatever it is full, felt great. But it was a spotted, diseased lamb we were bringing to the Lord. And as we worked to cut some of those spots out, to shear the sheep, to make it restored, <coughs> it just ran on down the road. Don't you dare shine a light on my life. I want to look holy. I'm not interested in being holy. And who are you to judge me? I'm sorry, I thought I was your pastor. Who are you to tell me that? I, I, I thought I was your pastor. Well, not anymore. Good, go find you one who will tell you whatever you want to hear. There's a bunch of them on this road. You don't have to go far. Listen to this. Verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? Don't you love this? Some people call this lofty prose. <laughs> Malachi is writing. And, and he both answers for the people and he answers for God. You've wearied me with your words. How have we wearied you with our words? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Have you ever heard, where is the God of justice? 
Have you ever heard, if God is just, how are those people starving in Africa? Have you ever heard that? My own father sat with me the very first time I ever witnessed the gospel to him. And he looked at me and he said, if, you're, if this is true, what about all those suffering people? And he began to name countries he's never been to and people he doesn't know. I didn't know what to say. I was new. I didn't know. I knew what he was saying was not right, but I didn't know why. The question is not why God did let why did God let that happen. The question is why did the church let it happen? There are no God forsaken places, there are church forsaken places. Where is the God of justice? Where are the people of justice? Isn't that funny that they would ask this question when they're not being just? They are themselves not being just, and so what are they charging God with? Injustice. Well, why don't you step up to the plate and be the justice of God on earth? Why don't you step up to the plate and live the kind of life that God can be pleased with? He is wearied to death with people who say one thing and do another. He is wearied to death with hypocrites that have had so much blessing that it's become a curse to them. I want to read to you starting in the third chapter and the 14th verse. I obviously would love to teach you the whole book of Malachi. And if you feel as if I plucked something out of context, read it and come back and share with me. I read this book many times. I love it. I see something new in it every time. I'm often faced with trying to teach you the entire biblical message in 60 minutes because I have this gnawing feeling that it's the only 60 minutes you'll get this week. I wish I was confident that every one of you were taking these Bibles home and you were spending at least as much time feeding your spirit as you were your face. That sounds like too much. How about as much time feeding your spirit as you spend watching your favorite television shows? Now we have no idols in our lives. 14th verse. You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His requirements? I've been told that so many times. And it is always from a man or a woman who did not actually carry out His requirements. Isn't that funny? Guy standing there, it's his third divorce. It's as much his fault as hers, but he can only see that it's her fault, and it's the church's fault, and it's everybody else's fault. And we're standing there, and he says, I did everything God required of me, and he still let me down. I said, you are a liar. thought he was going to take a swing at me. I have that ministry, if you don't know that. Self-deception might be our greatest capacity. We absolve ourselves of all blame, we blame everyone else, and we say God's ways don't work. Before you say that, commit a decade to it. How long are you going to be alive? Is there anybody in here that's fighting for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Some of you might like to live 100 years. Well, spend 10 really serving him, then come back and tell me whether his ways work or not. Not saying you served him. Actually do it. I found out that when faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down. I found out that God is looking for men and women who will sincerely try instead of just make excuses. You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His commands and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Do you get it? They built the buildings. They have had the walls around them. They've raised up teachers. And now they haven't seen Israel become chief among the nations immediately. And they are mad and discouraged, and upset, and it must be God's fault. Those of you who are theologians in here, does the book of Daniel fall in history before the book of Malachi? little hint, Daniel falls before it in this order. Good, good. One of you said confidently, yes. Daniel said there would be four Gentile kingdoms that would rule before the kingdom of God would be set up upon the earth. So why were they expecting this when they had not seen the fourth? The problem is always with our lack of understanding of God. The problem is never with God. And if you just ask Him, He will share even His deep secrets with you. He will put His Spirit in you. And His Spirit will communicate to you everything you need to know. But now, we call the arrogant blessed. <laughs> it's almost as if that was written in 2010. We call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Anybody see the movie Forrest Gump? Yes. Right? Private Dan. He's got no legs. 
He's in a mask. He's doing obscene gestures to the God of the universe. We put that in a movie and don't think much of it. Do you really think we're going to challenge God and escape? I'll tell you a story about another Herod. He just didn't turn away the praise that was being given him. And an angel hit him so hard with a sword that it killed him. And he fell down and was eaten by worms. So I've never seen anything like that. Praise God, you haven't. Keep sinning, you might get to. You know, the church grew every time there was an act of judgment. Do you know why? People found out God was real. Maybe his grace, preached at nauseum for 2,000 years, has turned out to be more of a curse than a blessing. Because the people have no fear of God. And we've twisted it into a license for complete and total immorality. You tell me, do you really think God is going to be pleased with such preaching and such living? We've even created little doctrines for ourselves. If Jorge, at some point in his life, stuck up a pinky while every head was bowed and every eye was closed, he's good to go, man. Go rape, murder, pillage, doesn't matter. And then if you catch him rape, murdering, and pillaging, we say, no, never was saved. Could have been a pastor for 50 years, doesn't matter, never was saved. Funny how it works. It's almost like we've made God's kingdom parlor tricks. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. God wrote down in the presence of the heavenly assembly the names of those who honored him and feared him. The good news about our present darkness is that if you shine just a little bit, you'll be easy to find. I want heaven to know my name. I want to be written on a scroll that this one honored the Lord, that this one feared the Lord. And I may fall flat on my face. In fact, I'm almost certainly going to do that. Probably not just a few times a bunch. But when the Lord listens to me talking in the privacy of my own home, in my car, in the commute, in traffic. I want him to be writing down a scroll of remembrance that this one honored him and feared him. And then on that day, I will in no way be ashamed if all of your conversations were written down. How would you feel about it? 17th verse is getting close to the end of what we're doing here. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. It's one thing to say you're his son. It's another to be a son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. I have a secret for you. It was not just John the Baptist who had this ministry. Jesus said there was yet an Elijah to come. John the Baptist's ministry was to present the Lord as verse 3, 2 says, But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Our God is sending out a purifying word. The word is the same as it's always been. It's repent. Get on a different road than you're on today. Do something different tomorrow than you did prior to today so that your life can be an offering that you're proud of so that First John could identify you as a Christian <clears throat> so that you might be able to proudly stand with the saints of God and if you have it in your head that God would never speak offensive words you should go read Matthew 23 16 through 17 he says, you're blind gods. Then he teaches them a little while. And he says, 
No, you're blind fools. And then he teaches them a little while long, and he says, you're hypocrites. These were two men whose lives made us look like Stalin, and them like Boy Scouts. What do you think he is going to say if we don't repent and change? Why don't you all stand to your feet? Darren, there's one more, one more scripture. Understand your feet. Or your feet. Feet. Feet is what we used to eat. Pig feet. If you've been racing through your mind saying, well, Eric, I don't do this and I don't do that. I want to remind you that Romans says we're called to the obedience that comes from faith. And that in the very same chapter, we find these words. It's in the first chapter of Romans, in the 32nd verse. Although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. I want to tell you, it's not enough just to not do some sin. You can also not give even tacit approval to those who did. It's a tale of two prayers. The question is, which one does your life speak? I'm okay, you're okay, let's all just be blessed. Or repent, we've sinned and we need the power of God. Let's pray. Mighty, mighty God. Lord, your word can be harsh, and yet you are gentle, and you are kind. And your mercy stretches on for generations. Lord, I want to be found in your mercy. Your word says mercy triumphs over judgment, and yet I know judgment won't delay forever. Some are snatched from the fire, some are gently encouraged. (coughs) Holy God, I am asking that you, by your spirit, would move appropriately in this body. Lord, that we might stand on that day as a pure, spotless bride. One who brought her very best to a king that was worthy of honor. We love you, Lord. As we begin to pray, and as we close our service and move out, Lord, let your conviction be upon us to live lives that are better than the ones that we've lived. And let condemnation that says, just give up now, be far from us. For they're capable of greatness, Lord. They can do even greater things than we saw in your earthly ministry because your spirit is in them. Let our faith rise to the occasion, Lord. We love you. And in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As you leave, I want to leave you with this thought. The book of Corinthians in the seventh chapter, and uh, the second book of Corinthians teaches that the difference between conviction and condemnation is that the kind of worldly sorrow that makes you want to go hang yourself is not from God. The kind that comes upon you and says, I can do better than this, that is from God. So when you leave here, look for something that you can do that will show God you love Him and do better than you did the day before. But what you're not to leave here and do is say, it's hopeless, I can't even make it. If you really do feel like that, honestly, come see a pastor because you're defeated already and we want to revive you. We want to help you. Amen? Amen. All right. Love you. We'll see you Sunday. Probably going to preach about deed-based evangelism Sunday, but not sure. And afterwards, potluck.